0: All right, Alicia, since you have an album coming out today and that is something to celebrate, if we could celebrate your favorite album of all time in an episode that we air publicly this Wednesday and put together extremely quickly, would it be The Breeders?
1: Pod is one of my favorite records of all time, so...
0: Welcome to Discograffiti, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. In this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on The Breeders' 1990 masterpiece of a debut record, Pod. This show serves as the stunning capper to our week-long celebration of Bullies' Alicia Bagnono, whose killer new sub-pop record, Lucky For You, was just released this past Friday, June 2nd. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Although this particular episode is a kick-ass addition to our Rock Cousteau series, in which we deep dive to exhume the buried treasures that rock histories got hidden up its sleeves, the standard Discography podcast is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guests and I explore their favorite band's entire discography in a futile but valiant effort to reach a higher truth. The show is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all, the real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face-to-face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got David Pajo rating his own band, slints Output, Jennifer Harima from Royal Trucks rating the New York fucking Dolls, both Vashti Bunyan and The Association rating the entirety of their own output, and Anthony Fantano, The Origin Story. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and click follow. And away we go, then, with my special guest, Joe Kennedy. Hey, Joe. Hey, Dave. What's up, brother man? You know, on the show... Nice to be here. In case you're a, a brand new listener, Joe was the original co-creator and co-host of this shebang, and it's great to have you back. And of course, Joe is a massively engaged musician in his own right. He works as Toshi off. if I can use such a cuss on this show. <laughs> Leave it out. Yeah. Well, actually, you give me hip bona fides because <laughs> your involvement, your heavy, deep, rich involvement on the black Seminole is one to touch upon briefly of course there's a lot of things in the works right now with you that we can't talk about right now
1: yeah a lot of i have a lot of things that are kind of pending exciting hopefully future credits for songwriting and playing that keeping fingers crossed some kind of big tentpole record
0: it's super impressive everything you're engaged in right now is a jaw dropper all right. Well, to get back on track here. So, you know, I told Alicia, we were going to do a week's worth of programming to celebrate her release. And so uh, we did a Friday, Monday and Wednesday that was all available and has been all available to the public. Whereas usually it's a Patreon thing where Monday and Wednesday, you have to be a subscriber to Patreon to get that stuff. She wanted us to cover the Breeders pod. And that's pretty cool. Usually Wednesday is a private press segment where I'm re- and talking about a record that an artist put out by themselves and they're really really interesting but this week we're just doing bully programming and the cool thing that you get from today is two guys who were old enough to have lived through Generation X in the 1990s and bought all the right records or I should say CDs but for some weird reason Joe and I both completely missed out on the breeders pod which turns out to have been a masterpiece in my opinion. And much to my excitement, this is a new discovery for me.
1: I was still in high school, we, we were still in high school. I was not really into cool music in high school. I had no idea this record even existed at the time. I was not aware of it at all at the time.
0: Come to think of it, I may not have been that aware of it either. It came out, I'm looking at the release date here, it's May 29th, 1990. So if that's true, then you and I were literally like graduating. Yeah. And I wasn't that incredibly aware of it. And for whatever reason, even though I'm a Pixies fan, And you and I both recorded an incredible episode about them. We both kind of missed the boat on this. Now, by
1: the time Last Splash had come out in 93, Three, my taste had changed a lot. And so I was very aware of that record and the Pixies and all of it. I kind of discovered all that stuff in the intervening years. So that one I knew contemporaneously, but Pod, not really so much. Going back and listening to it now, there are a few things that I remembered from just hearing them either play live or songs that have been on playlists over the year. But there was a good chunk of this record that I had never heard before.
0: It is their debut studio record as a group, released by 4AD, engineered by Steve Albini. That was his designation because he really produced it always kind of underselling his own stuff which you gotta love his stance on shit the
1: pixies had had a lot of success by this time yeah and their uh, contemporaries throwing muses had also had quite a bit of success not as much as the pixies maybe commercially but critically and of course tanya donnelly of throwing muses is another key member of this lineup of the Breeders.
0: Which, by the way, let's talk about that just for a, a micro moment, because this isn't really the Tanya Donnelly show at all. And we'll get into why.
1: The Breeders was sort of designed as a Kim-Tanya collaborative project, but Pod was the Kim record, and the next one was going to be the Tanya-focused record.
0: The actual birth of the Breeders is as chin-scratchingly, chaotically weird as the music itself. They formed in 1988 when Kim Deal, who, if you don't know, was the bass player for the Pixies, became friends with Tani Donnelly from Throwing Muses during a tour of Europe. When they went to a Sugar Cubes concert, the two of them kind of drunkenly made the decision to become a dance song outfit. (laughs) They were gonna write and record dance music, and their first attempt to work together was based around this idea of an organic dance band, which, if you know the Breeders' work, that idea was completely abandoned. And it was initially supposed to be Kim on bass, Tanya Donnelly on guitar and two drummers. They recorded Tanya's song Rise, as well as Tell Me Something Good by Rufus and Chaka Khan. That was right. going to be the direction. And then Kim called the project The Breeders, which was a name that she and her sister Kelly had used when they were teenagers, which is the LGBT community's reference to straight people, which I love. That's Yeah, it's a funny name. Great. Yeah, it's yeah. In- Perfect. So they did actually record a country music influence demo. What I love about this, it's supposed to be a dance band. Then when they actually start recording, it becomes a country music thing. And then based on the country music thing, Ivo Watts Russell, you know, the head of 4AD, he loved the country angle and gave the band an $11,000 advance to record a record. A year and a half goes by. The pair doesn't record anything. And they decide, fuck the dance music thing and maybe even fuck the country thing then black francis i think became more resolute about the pixies being the black francis show
1: right and they end up recording the debut a bit later in Scotland. Scotland, okay, yeah. So not in Boston or one of the indie rock hubs in America, it was recorded overseas.
0: You know, even there, there's sort of a violence to the record, they recorded the whole thing in their pajamas, not the entirety of it, but they often would just wear pajamas to the studio and a whole bunch of times just went to the local pub without even changing. So this was a cozy atmosphere. 4AD booked the studio for two weeks, they were done in a week. Just. traded away the rest of the time to do a music video and recording some John Peel stuff.
1: Right. So they bring in two other key members, first of which is Britt Walford of Slint on drums. And he's pretty key to the sound of Pod, because this is not too far from when Spiderland was made. And he brings his sort of very dramatic style of drumming. It's a very big, dramatic kind of drumming style, not too dissimilar from how he plays on Spiderland.
0: Right. Just a little backstory there. You know, Kim actually wanted an all-female band. Kelly Deal was the initial intention to be the drummer, but she couldn't get away from her job as a program analyst, which I'm sure she's kicking herself in the tushy on a daily basis for by this point. But the alternative was Albini's suggestion to go for Britt, who at that point was 19 years old. And do you know why he used the pseudonym Shannon Doughton? no i love
1: the pseudonym though why why
0: did he use that he used it because he didn't want his contribution to this record to overshadow his role in slint i i think based on my conversation with pajo recently that brian mcmahon already knew he was leaving but the rest of the guys had no clue that uh it was over right So Britt
1: Walford is a very interesting, idiosyncratic kind of fellow. Love his playing on this. It's Um,
0: amazing. Yeah.
1: And the other key member they got is Josephine Wiggs, who stayed a long-term member of the band and also has kind of a distinct sort of sound. Has a very distinct post-punk kind of punchy, bright kind of sound. Sounds like there's kind of brand new strings on the bass. Has a definite kind of recognizable tone and style.
0: Also got to say that Carrie Bradley on violin kind of tips things over into a very welcome raincoats kind of territory.
1: Yeah, yeah. So she was in the band Ed's Redeeming Qualities, remember them? Kind of. (laughs) They were kind of a regional sort of concern. They were a Boston band, contemporaries of both Pixies and Throwing Muses.
0: They had a run. It's so funny how many initial mission statements and concepts there were before Pod exploded out as this perfect little thing that had nothing to do with any of the initial conceptions. But before Britt came on board, Kim Deal thought it would be fun to form an all-female band, quote, Like the bangles from hell, which is so cool.
1: Yeah, that's great. This record really has a feeling that you don't get so much anymore. It's very unfussy. It's like she had some songs, they went in and learned them, recorded them quickly, not a lot of overdubs. Her personality and songwriting and the band's playing and chemistry and all that kind of carry the day. You know, no big whoop. You go in, write some songs, record them, play them. You know, you either got the goods or you don't. Don't see that so much of that anymore. It has the feeling of kind of discovery to it. Like they don't know the song that great like they're not super polished they're kind of still discovering them And there's still a bit of excitement to them for that reason. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a sweet spot when you're learning, when you're making a record. Say you've been playing these songs on tour for a year or something. It's just a different kind of record than a record where you're just learning them and they're still very fresh and exciting to you. But one's not necessarily better than the other, it's just a different way of working. This definitely has that feeling of like they're kind of figuring it out on the fly a little bit.
0: Let's talk about why it's a Kim Deal record and there's no Donnelly compositions. Do you know the agreement that the two of them made together?
1: first one was yeah. supposed to be mostly kim's record and then the next one was going to be tanya's turn right like the basic right. Uh, the basic gist and then right. it ended up never happening for various reasons and then tanya went off and did belly
0: right and then you know another cool thing about this is that i don't know how well versed kim was on guitar but to switch from your normal instrument to go on to something else when you're fronting a band if the sound is uneasy to start with then you add that into it it kind of makes you sometimes like a little bit queasy to even listen to it
1: yeah i'm not 100 not sure on this. I'm speculating because these are Kim's songs. I'm guessing that Kim is playing rhythm guitar and singing most of the time and that the color guitar is probably mostly Tanya, sort of in that Joey Santiago role. The guitar stuff in general is very well thought out. The parts are really nice. In general, the, all the arrangements and playing on the record are, are very well considered one of the strengths of the record, so really nice guitar playing by both of them. Intuitively, it seems to me that it would be Tanya kind of playing more of the color this kind of stuff because she's not singing.
0: Interestingly, it really sounds very much of a piece with the Pixies, but yet if you read the reactions of the rest of the guys in the band to what she was doing, you would think she was doing something completely dissimilar. What do you think?
1: There are definitely moments of it that sound very Pixies-like. The setup's even the same. Two guitars, bass drums, kind of one guitar doing a lot of the sort of color stuff. There's some sort of quiet, loud dynamics. There's some hooks that are pixies-ish sounding
0: dark sensibility i mean everything sounds like yeah there's no reason why these wouldn't have worked and it sounds like the reason why they weren't on pixies records was purely ego driven and that's it
1: yeah sure i mean some of these you could easily see as pixie songs i mean kim had songs and other records that you know were in that same style too so it's not like kim's stuff within the pixies sounds particularly different than what they do everybody in the project here kind of has that pedigree of coming from post-punk and has that sensibility so it's really kind of like everybody being on the same page so that's similar to the Pixies too everybody's kind of in with the concept (laughs) everybody understands their role and Really functions well as a unit, the same way the Pixies did. Uh, not a lot of wasted effort. No,
0: no. In fact, this thing is kind of EP length. It's thirty minutes.
1: Yeah, I always thought it was an EP, which I guess it's not really. It's just a it's short, not. shortish in fact, album.
0: The next thing they did was an EP, but this yeah. you could call this an EP. It's that short. It's also it makes its point and it gets out. There's, there really isn't any waste. Let's drop the needle on this motherfucker, shall we? Okay. First, let's talk about the moment their career begins when they stumble. Into that—that's a statement of intent to start a record and a career like that. Yeah, fucking aok, man. I
1: love that. Glorious. That's the first tune there. Yeah, yeah, that's one you can definitely easily envision that as a Pixies song. Oh yeah. Um, that one in particular, that one really stuck out to me. This is another example of what I was saying before about their ensemble playing and everybody understanding the style and fitting well together. You know, I really like the musicianship on this record a lot. None of them. Are or virtuoso players or musicians, but everybody just has good taste and plays with some attitude and again those are always also very uh, pixies-ish kind of traits.
0: Yeah and Joe you know me musically better than just about anyone on the planet and you know that I'm not a lyrics guy typically but I did a lot of research into what these songs were about because the lyrics are very impressionistic and when reading them you would not get a clear sense of the idea behind each song. The
1: lyrics are very interesting in general. They're all pretty dark and if you kind of like dig into each song they all kind of have Uh, twisted kind of concept behind them
0: this one certainly belongs in that category glorious is about someone recollecting in a vague but pleasant way of being molested by her aunt as a kid, right. and then the tea that's being mentioned in the song is mushroom tea. Right. But Almost
1: yeah. every song on this record has some kind of concept like that behind it. Some kind of dark, vaguely twisted kind of
0: that uh, you'd never know.
1: Disturbing, disturbing kind of concept. You have to kind of tease it out too. It's a yeah. lot of it's, and uh, like you said, a kind of impressionistic.
0: The vibe of this thing, a lot of it's down to Brit is that it really lurches and stomps. Yeah, it's a mid-tempo stomper for sure. Yeah, yeah. Great it's, guitar it's, stuff. The way they used to do heavy back in the 90s, when they would slow it down like that, you don't really hear that decision made that often these days.
1: Right off the bat, it has the very Albini sounding kind of sound. The sort of roomy, naturalistic kind of production style, which I got to say, we have talked about a lot of his records on the show in the past, and once he kind of finds his groove and and finds that like naturalistic kind of style and approach, those records all hold up really well. They sound great it really years do. later. They don't have any uh, period dated kind of artifacts on them. That naturalistic style, it's really held up.
0: If you are an Albini fan and you love that time period, man, are you in luck because on Disco I mean, we've got a Nirvana episode, Pixies, PJ Harvey. Um, now this. Glorious, great opener. Doe is one of the best on the record as well. I've always loved that melodically very very intense i didn't know this until recently but it's about a schizophrenic teenage couple who are losing their grip on reality after taking thurizine and in a totally delusional state they just plan on burning down their their town
1: right has that very pixies ish kind of hook that's part of the verse um yeah almost kind of like where is my mind a little bit kind of hook. yeah this is maybe the most pixies ish song the first two especially
0: i would go for either this or fortunately gone yeah fortunately gone has that sort of here comes your man sticky sugar pop song thing yeah but yeah this is definitely the intensity of the old testament ferocity that black francis has is shared with Doe for sure highlight of the record really good song totally and then just as a cover choice alone Happiness is a Warm Gun is right on point
1: Yeah, so I've played Happiness is a Warm Gun as a cover in a few different projects, always fun to play because it's a complicated song but you just kind of know it it's like you kind of automatically know how to play it because you've heard it so many times. It's so familiar. It has all these weird changes in it, but your hands just go to it kind of automatically because you know the song so well. They do a very faithful cover of it, but they also bring their kind of post-punk energy to it. It makes the song seem like it was an indie rock classic that was just ahead of its time. <laughs> you know, It yeah. really fits in the format of indie rock really well.
0: Yeah. And also two components that they bring to it where they kind of stamp their own identity onto it is the surreal Britt Walford, Josephine Wiggs' between song patter about baldness. That feels of a piece to me with the Black Francis Pixie spoken word interpolation stuff. Yeah. And also that lighter flick at the start of the song is awesome. Yeah, it's
1: great. There's a couple moments where you get Britt Walford's kind of idiosyncratic personality a little bit, which
0: I I love. Yeah. 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 Funny guy you know about the anal breathing tape right yes yeah, yeah yeah anyone out there who's who's listening who doesn't know about the anal breathing tape keep listening to the Paho series because we'll be talking about it <laughs> oh is next oh is awesome i love the gentler stuff that both the pixies and the breeders do
1: yeah this one i love the way it's produced and mixed it does have a lot of ton of space in it and it has that kind of quietness to it but then the drums just kind of like carry this heavy pounding sort of thing to it so Almost kind of like uh, codeine or something like in that in yeah, that kind yeah. of sense.
0: This one's about an insect who tries to rally his other insect friends, uh, hoping that nobody gets stepped on. It was originally called The Insect Song. It's
1: set up like you think it's going to be a big epic. Like it's going to be a big giant slow burn. It's like a kind of acoustic guitar. This is one of the ones that has the violin. It seems like it's really going to kind of creep up on you. And then... It kind of just ends kind of unexpectedly, yeah. which I love about it. You could easily see a band with different priority would have made this into a five minute long epic that with a big, yeah. huge loud part at the end, but they have the restraint. They don't do that. And it, it, when it ends, it's kind of like, huh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> the
0: definition of epic to these guys is breaking the two minute barrier.
1: Yeah, it's 227, the length of the song. Mysterious chord sequence, and yeah, I like that one a lot. That was a nice discovery.
0: I have to say, there's not a song I don't like on this. Yeah, I think the first
1: half is so, so, so good. The first six songs. The second half is still good, maybe not quite as, but the first half is really kind of all highlights.
0: Yeah, I mean, the first song where I'm not like a thousand percent on board is when I was a painter, but even that has an incredible guitar section. So ultimately, I don't dislike like it. Hellbound is just a great song. That's like textbook, actually was constructed on top of a baseline by Josephine Wiggs. This is like the best one as far as the lyrical basis, but there's actually a, a great movie called It's Alive, and it's basically what It's Alive is about, which is a fetus that survives an abortion. She said uh, it's about creating stupid stuff, creating messes. Sometimes we all do dumb things and say, oh, look, I've created an abortion, and it lives. This one,
1: so Pod was very influential on Kurt Cobain who was a huge fan of it. This one sounds like one of the ones that was uh, probably influential to him. There's some Nirvana riffage style things going on in the song. And Um, the melodic
0: stuff, everything about it. Yeah,
1: this one really to me was like, oh, now I see, I can see the link here. Why, you know, I can see how this was influential.
0: It's definitely one of the best songs on the record. When I was a painter, like I said before, to me, it's the two or three weakest songs on the record. However, the sawing guitar part in the breakdown is one of the most intense parts on the record. It's just sick.
1: This one, also another kind of Nirvana moment here, is one of the main riffs is kind of like the riff from Aneurysm. This one's kind of more of a riff-based sort of thing, not so song-oriented, but cool stuff in it. One of the slider songs on the record, but hmm. still pretty cool.
0: Fortunately Gone, like I said, very Here Comes Your Man. It feels like she's definitely taken a page from the Pixies book to me.
1: This is one rare example on the record of Kim and Tanya doing a little, like, you know, John and Paul or Phil and Don kind of harmonizing. Right. They don't do it that much, but it's nice when they do.
0: Another great lyrical thing, it's about a woman who's dead but continues to obsess over her lover Mm -hmm. and cannot give him up, even as a ghost. Gotta love that. So Kim and Kelly had been practicing Fortunately Gone for years before recording it for Pod. This has been around Mm -hmm. for a while. Great song. Iris. Pretty ominous song. It's got a real 90s vibe to it, like this real doomy, gloomy kind of vibe to it. Do you like the song?
1: Yeah, so I always loved this song. This was a song I was most familiar with. This was on some sort of compilation or something. I, I knew this song from some other source. It was always one of my favorite breeder songs. I actually maybe even thought it was on Last Flash, but yeah, it's a big epic. It's in 5-4, Odd Time, and with Britt Walford's playing on it, it has very Spider Landy kind of moments to it, that kind of drama that Spiderland manages. Yeah, it's from 1990, but it feels like the most 1990s thing
0: there is definitely like a codeine kind of a thing in the verses for me
1: yeah it ha- it really does have that kind of sense of drama to it yeah great song my favorite overall on the record um, oh
0: really this yeah. one was actually a grower for me at first i wasn't a thousand percent on board with it because i listened to this maybe eight times for this yeah one. i listened to it a bunch too it's only half hour long opened is again brit putting his stamp on the record opened lyrically is a better recurring sex stream that brit walford had
1: yeah this one one kind of is similar to me to the other one when I was a painter, kind of more of a riff-based sort of thing, more so than
0: song-oriented. The next one is definitely more song-oriented though, only in threes. Right, and it's kind of
1: interesting to hear the demo because it's a much breezier kind of feel. It has that sort of country
0: rock feel. This has always been one of my favorites on the record. Yeah, this is kind of a key track, one of
1: the key tracks on the record. The pod version has that inherent kind of drama and it's much darker than the uh, the demo.
0: It's their triad. This was a a Kim and Tanya co-write. Limehouse is next, which lyrically is so awesome. It's Sherlock Holmes having a nice afternoon at an opium den. (laughs) Wow, nice. Did you know that? I did not know that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, These songs all do have like little, like if you want to get more into the lyrics, you really can. They're all pretty interesting like that.
0: So the last song on the record is what I would describe as a soft wind down. The only seemingly intentionally minor song on the record. Metal. Yeah, and this
1: seems like another one where you're expecting the big metal man exactly where you're expecting the big buildup that doesn't come it does for like a couple of bars it explodes into a big climax for a second and then kind of dies down right away again the temptation for another band might have been to make this a five minute long thing
0: or to actually have a song that closes the record instead of just a mood thing right i think it's a fitting end it is it feels right like you know if you're really an empathetic musician i believe you're not just listening to the other people in your band you're listening to what the record wants to be yeah yeah It feels like they really did that here because you know on its own there's nothing magical about this song. It's just a a piece of music. It is whatever it is. But you know they were listening, and this is what the album needed and wanted.
1: Yeah, yeah. The writes a kind of an unexpected album a lot of times, even though they're kind of working in that Pixies feel and sound. It's a record that looks to subvert expectations a lot. So I think this is a suitable closer for it.
0: Yeah, and Kim has described the record as a collection of ugly, stinking, gross songs. (laughs) It definitely fits that bill. What I like about it is that it's got, just like the Pixies as well, it's both evil and playful. Yeah. And so it's
1: interesting to put it in context with the next album, Last Splash, which was obviously their big breakthrough. I listened to Last Splash. I did a re-listen just, or flip through it really. I didn't really do a close listen. It's striking how different, like Last Splash is so much a more polished effort and there's so many more kind of ear candy, pretty moments on Last Splash, very consonant, hooky, songs, both greats. I mean, I, I really like Last Splash a lot. I think as an artifact of its time, considering how hugely successful Last Splash was, it's pretty great for what ended up being a mainstream kind of rock record. Um, you know
0: what? I've never heard that one either. I knew I would like them, but I just, for whatever reason, the whole thing blew by me. I, I don't know why. I recommend it a lot. I mean,
1: I'd probably say i probably slightly prefer Last Splash, but they're so very different. You know, obviously Kim's Sensibility carries the day, but it's just a different kind of record. It does not have the thing where it feels like it was made quickly, just to get a few people in ribbon plate. and
0: it also doesn't have the same kind of violence in
1: it does it kim co-produced last splash and it's much more radio friendly doesn't have that brutal kind of... It, like when Kim talks about Pod being kind of ugly and aggressive, she's right. Last Splash is definitely a uh, edges sanded down kind of experience, but um, there's great songs on it. And it just still pleases me to no end that Music yeah. is Strange was so popular. Right, and, right. So for a short
0: time. it was a pretty widely anticipated record, especially in Europe, and it was kind of successful. It You're was, talking about Pod. Pod, yeah. Yeah. It went up as high as number 22 in England. It was praised. Kirk Just like with the Raincoats and, you know, these other bands where it kind of changed their lives just the fact that he would talk about them in interviews. Usually bands that were women were prominent in bands. Long-term, Pitchfork, whatever, ranked at number 81 on its list of the best albums of the 90s. So let's talk about what happened after. So Kim and Tanya recorded a demo of Tanya's songs in preparation for the second album by the Breeders, but Tanya wound up leaving the group in 91 and used all those compositions for a belly. Pod sold moderately well, but Kim has noted that it never sold anything compared to Last Splash, which was platinum in the US and silver in the UK. Steve Albini said that Pod had a sort of girlish fascination with things that were pretty, but it was also kind of horny. And that, <laughs> and that was a juxtaposition that at the time was unusual. You didn't get a lot of knowing winks from female artists at the time.
1: Kim is a very sincere, I feel like, artist. She just does her thing. She's not putting on any kind of air. or you know, She's not doing any kind of character or anything. She just has this great quirky sensibility and this amazing personality as a musician and as a person has a sense of humor um, you know doesn't take it all too seriously but has like a really kind of great melodic knack and likes to do things that are surprising so she's fucking
0: cool man I had a great run in with her and for this episode I remember this yeah I tried to track this down could not find it unfortunately but what happened was I was in New York it was 1996 so what was Going on with her at the time? Was it the amps? Yeah, probably. I was right outside of Katz's Delicatessen, and there's Kim Deal. And so I recognized her immediately even though i was a douche and hadn't bought pod or last splash and i went up to her i had a notebook with me and i asked her if she could write a stanza of elizabethan poetry for me and without missing a beat she grabbed my book and wrote a poem and gave it to me just talk about like she's in the moment there wasn't even a moment that blew by she just was I like, actually remember the poem what was it again <laughs> i remember Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family three thousand miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so, if you're like me, and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com/discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discog Graffiti is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three-times-a-week music deep dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's The humdinger of them all. Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discograffiti.
1: It went something like this. It said, uh, he asked her to write a poem full of these and those, but she didn't know what to say so she stood there like a cow
0: yeah that's right I knew that. <laughs> thank you so much oh, jesus i looked through so much stuff to find that if i do find it i promise oh, yeah definitely. post a the photo yeah. yeah i will but yeah she does have a great sense of humor she was rolling with the moment you know fully on board because i've met a lot of celebrities and i ask everyone you know something out of the ordinary that they've not been hit with before and she rolled with it in a way that was really admirable yeah very very authentic person I always I yeah, always yeah. Like, you know. just to give a sense of the timing involved here with regard to the Pixies Iva Watts Russell for 4AD had planned the release date to not be too close to bossa nova which was coming out two and a half months later it was right before bossa nova that this went down I don't feel like history remembers this quite so correctly, though, because this is a classic, I think. I would give it five stars. I don't know. What would you give it? I give it four and a half,
1: which is, for all intents and purposes, five. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're splitting hairs at that point.
0: Yeah, at that point, you're splitting hairs. But, you know, it got mixed reviews when it was released. Uh,
1: Yeah, now I will say pretty much all Breeders records are really good, so the Breeders kind of went dormant for a long time, and then she came back with a slightly different lineup and they made a record called Title TK really nice record. The one I really love is called Mountain Battles. Right, that one was from like 2006 or something.
0: Right, they came back another time and that work is supposed to be incredible.
1: Yeah, so Mountain Battles I love. And then honestly, there's another one that was done with the Last Splash lineup that I'm not really familiar with. That came out maybe like five, six years ago. I'm psyched
0: Um, to do a full overview on them.
1: She really doesn't miss a beat. When she comes back to do Breeders' Records many years later, she just picks up where it left off. Um, Right.
0: Last note on Kurt Cobain for those who are obsessed with the guy Uh, pod he's listed it as his seventh favorite album and then his third favorite album in his private journals and in a 1992 melody maker article he called it his favorite album of all time yeah Yeah. you can see uh,
1: definitely where it made an impression on him you can definitely see that for sure
0: yeah and so I would like to thank Alicia Bagnono, whose album Lucky For You uh, by her project, Bully, just came out this past Friday. And with her blessing, this was the episode that came out of that, which I think, you know, it's interesting how act's legacy gets broken down and disseminated. Because Pod was a big influence on Courtney Love on her songwriting for Live Through This, but Alicia never heard Live Through This. So mm. it, it didn't get refracted through anything except the initial concept of what Pod was, uh, right. which is cool. I want to thank you for coming on, dude. You're a bro and a half. Always a pleasure. I always love coming on and doing the show. That about does it. A heartfelt discog graffiti thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Alicia Bagnano and the great Joe Kennedy, Becca Flynn and the rest of the gang over at Sub Pop, my incredibly loyal fans and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, not in a romantic way, and this show would not exist without at you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. you are in our Facebook group, Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator, and much more. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Either follow Discograffiti on Instagram or just email me at info at discograffiti.com and I'll keep you regular, as it were. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper is to get thee directly to that Nirvana episode I keep talking about, the number of which is escaping me, so just go back and look for it. Plus, episode 18 is The Pixies, episode 12 is PJ Harvey, the David Pajo series, begins at 94 and then, of course, the Pavement series and the Lou Barlow series, where I Gen myself half to death from episodes 49 to 62, with the help of Lou himself and the awesome Bob Nastanovich. Also, make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Most seem to be choosing this path these days, and here's your chance to find out why. I post three shows a week, so don't get it twisted. This isn't a podcast, it's a way of life. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because this upcoming Friday, June 9th, we're coming at you with David Paho in an action-packed episode that covers the entirety of his solo career. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's the sky graffiti.